Hello and welcome to Mere Fidelity. This is Matthew Lee Anderson. I am your host for the day. I'm joined by Derek and Alistair. Uh, we kicked Andrew off the show this week. Uh, we had so much fun talking with him about his book last week, talking about the church and the nature of sacraments and the spirit and how those work together, that we thought we would have another rip-roaring discussion about the church, but do so without him uh, for reasons that, well, are just entirely arbitrary. Um, we wanted to get it right. We wanted to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> as, as one of us may have said uh, earlier, b- before we started actually recording this thing, um, by the end of this podcast, we will finally have fixed Andrew Wilson's ecclesiology. I'll let, I'll let you listeners at home decide which of the three of us would have made that joke. Um, uh, uh, send your submissions in. No prizes will be awarded. Um, guys, it's good to be with you. Uh, I'm excited to talk about the church. I was reading Karl Barth actually this last week, which is always a, a dangerous thing to do. Uh, but specifically on the invisibility of the church uh, and the kind of visibility it has. And so that's what we're going to talk about. I thought, uh, actually, Derek thought, told me I should start this uh, by, of course, talking about or reading from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the most Presbyterian thing that Derek has ever done to me. Um, it's really so, tough to just beat the concise and precise and correctness of the document. And anybody <laughs> who's on any sort of licensure and ordination committee should be hearing that right now. Just take note for the <laughs> Take note. Okay. Yeah, right. So here it is. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 25 of the church. I'll read articles one and two, wherein this distinction between the uh, invisible and the visible church is laid down. So here's how it reads. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Article 2. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Um, so guys, I, Derek, since you have already proclaimed magisterially the rightness of this document. Uh, Ministerially. That's one of my questions. Was it ministerial or was it magisterial? Um, Uh, I'm interested to hear uh, uh, your account of this distinction. Um, What is the invisibility of the church? How should we think about it as Christians? Alistair? (laughs) No, that was directly to you, Derek. (laughs) It was directed to you, Derek. Uh, (laughs) That was literally like, Derek, you you can't throw it to Alistair. I know, I know. Uh, you know, r- roughly, uh, roughly the invisibility of the church. Well, first of all, it's not original to the uh, Westminster Confession. It goes back as far 
Well, I'd argue it goes back to the Bible and Paul, but uh, you know, in theological history, it's at least as far back as Augustine, and it's the recognition that you know, uh, not all of not all who are of Israel are are Israel, right? There's 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 a public body uh, that is the church that is usually witnessed and visible and seen in the history of salvation and seen in the history of uh, just period <laughs> seen in church history and world history. And at the same time, there's a division uh, within that body of those who are uh, actually elect and those, those who will say to the Lord, you know, we perform miracles in your name, Lord, Lord, um, uh, are we yours? And, and he'll look at them and say, I be gone. I never knew you. There's a split within it. There's Israel within Israel. There's, there are those who are elect and called and known by God as his children and those who um, publicly claim such and yet are not. And so that distinction between the visible and invisible starts with, with noting that the reality of faith is not always transparent to our public, to public witness. Uh, there's also the um, universal point about it, the invisible church, that it's not just that, you know, who's around now, who's actually uh, elect and not elect, but the fact that the totality of the church uh, is not alive, right? It, it, it's, you know, some of it's still yet to be born. Some of it has been dead for 2,000 years, 3,000 years, but we are all part of the one uh, not currently visible church because, well, we're extended in time and space and, and you know, the church the church militant that's alive and then uh, the, the church triumphant that's in glory. So that I think is my initial nutshell um, distinction. And, you know, I should probably index that to Jesus, right? The totality of who is in Christ, who's been elected in Christ, Ephesians one, Colossians one, that sort of thing. Um, anybody else pitch in on that? Alistair? There's a good piece that um, Brad Littlejohn recently wrote on the subject of the invisibility of the church and ecumenism and um, some of the recent debates about church unity. One of the things he observes is that the invisibility of the church is very much about the foundations of the church, that it is what is fundamental to the church, which is the unity that it finds in Christ. And Christ isn't visible to our eyes. Um, the work of the spirit, we can, the church is seen um, in its visible form, but we do not, we do not know who is in the church, but the church is visible. Um, so we see the people who are in the church, but we don't know exactly who those people are. Um, and so it's, it's understanding that the fundamental reality of the church arises from the root of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, and that there are points where we can see something that on the surface might look to be a member of the church, a tear that is growing up next to the wheat, or um, Brad's example of some dandelions that may share the same underlying root system, and there may be another dandelion nearby that looks to be associated with the other ones, but may not in fact be. When we recognise that, I think it helps us to see a bit more of what is going on, that the fundamental unity of the church is not in visible institutional form, but it's in the underlying unity in Christ and in the Spirit. 
And that, I think, helps us to approach issues of visible church unity in a more careful manner and helps us to avoid some of the problems in church bodies, I think particularly the Roman Catholic Church, that represents the idea of visible church unity as that which should be desired over all else and that which is the measure of the actual unity of the church. Keep going, man. You're preaching. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we got to have our friend Peg back on uh, to, to have him defend the papist side on this. So I would relish I, that. <laughs> so I guess I wonder, um, I understand the doctrine of the invisible church is making the question of the institutional form of the church secondary, right? So there's if you if you think of ecclesiology as having an ordered exposition, um, you order your exposition by speaking of the first things first and the second things second, and the institutional form of the church becomes the second thing that you say within the doctrine of ecclesiology after the first thing, which is about the invisibility of the church. But I was um, intrigued by the way in which Christology gets positioned in both of your expositions of this doctrine. Um, and in one way, in, in, in Brad Littlejohn's exposition in the article that Alistair mentioned as well, um, for, for, for Derek, you know, it's, it's early in the morning for you. So we'll give you some, I, uh, I got in at two last night and I survived a terrible cab driver. So yeah. Just, so we'll give you yeah. a little leeway. It's not my, but, it's not my A game. Christology was an appendix in your presentation, um, uh, perhaps yes, a very you know. <laughs> you know problematic way. It was to do unintentional. It. Uh, it was unintentional. Um, but Alistair, um, you know, in 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 your presentation of it as well, much hangs on the claim of the invisibility of Christ to us. Uh, and if you start with Christology and say something like the ascended Christ is invisible to our eyes. There are lots of questions that I have about uh, what happens within, for instance, communion, right? Where Calvin's account of communion will uh, sort of, uh, Calvin explains communion as lifting us up into heaven and allowing us in one sense to glimpse the reality of the risen Christ um, and to have experienced this participation with him. And in that way, the church becomes is the visible body of Christ on earth. Um, so the, you know, the question of the visibility of the church in one sense, if you're in your order of your exposition, you start with the visibility of the church, you might do so, Precisely because the first thing that you say is that Christ is invisible, in fact, and therefore, like his body becomes visible. And that's the first thing that we have to say about the church. It links together Christology and ecclesiology uh, more directly. Does that make sense? I'm curious about your use of the example of the Eucharist and Calvin's doctrine particularly, because there's... I mean, in Calvin's doctrine, do the impious actually partake of the body of Christ? Um, I mean, that's a clear question that you have within Calvin's um, sacramentology that I think places in doubt some of the ways that you presented it. Sure. There. More generally, though, I think that 
that there are issues that very much do come down to questions of the sacraments. When we're thinking about the invisibility of the church, often it's some of the statements that we have associated with the sacraments, that we are baptized into Christ, that we put on Christ in baptism, that we are regenerated in baptism, all these sorts of statements, that we actually participate in Christ by the Spirit in the Eucharist. These sorts of statements say something very grand about what is occurring when we are participating in the sacraments. The problem is that what do you do with the many people who manifest by their lives over time that they have no participation of such a kind whatsoever? They're not fully living out that reality. And in some respects, this is similar to thinking about when we talk about marriage, for instance, when we have a wedding ceremony and the idea that that wedding ceremony is not into this indifferent state that's ambivalent as to whether it's a happy or healthy or faithful union or not. No, we speak about it in the most positive of terms. We speak about entering into a lifelong loving union, etc. And that part of that is the um, illocutionary force, the intended force of that particular rite, that that is how it is fulfilled, how it is lived out in its proper form. And in the same way with the church, when we're celebrating the sacraments, the intended reality is like an adoption, that you would enter into the full reality of a loving home, that you would become a full participant in the life of this family. And in the same way with the church, that these things are realised in the full um, enjoyment of the privileges that, and the gifts that they hold out to us. And the fact that some people do not enter into those is seen as a somehow a falling short of the meaning of the sign. And the difference between the visible and the invisible is very much something that plays upon the same axis as something like the difference between sign and thing signified, that there is a genuine signification of the blessings of Christ within the sacraments, but clearly not all people enter into the full reality of that. But those things truly hold out those blessings. And in the same way, the visible church is the church, the actual church, viewed from a particular aspect. And yet, there are clearly people within it who participate in its signs, who participate in its practices, who are part of its body in its visible form, but aren't entering into its reality. Yeah. So Calvin, I just looked it up. Calvin's section on the Invisible and Visible Church uh, Institutes, it's before chapter one, uh, about... 10, 1021 uh, in the Battles edition. But he talks about two distinctions, you know, like says, you know, the church, the scripture talks about the church in a couple of different ways. One, there's those who are actually in God's presence and that's only ever people who are truly adopted and so forth. He says, then, um, you know, then indeed the church includes not only saints presently living on earth, but all the elect from the beginning of the world. Often, however, the name church designates the whole multitude of men spread over the earth who profess to worship one God in Christ. By baptism, we are initiated into faith in him. By partaking of the Lord's Supper, we attest our unity in true doctrine and love. In the word of the Lord, we have agreement. And for the preaching of the word, the ministry instituted by Christ is preserved. And then he gets to the point payoff. In this church are mingled many hypocrites who have nothing of Christ but the name and outward appearance. There are many, there are very many 
ambitious, greedy, envious persons, evil speakers who have nothing, uh, and some some of quite unclean life. Such are tolerated for a time either because they cannot be convicted by a competent tribunal or because a vigorous discipline does not always flourish as it ought. And he goes on, and so we believe that we still refer outwardly to the whole communion of the church, even though it involves such uh, such tares sprinkled in and so forth. And so he does very clearly talk about the fact that, you know, the whole church participates in these things. And at the same time, there are people who don't really, truly um, are, they're not, they're not elect. They're not in union with Christ. They're not truly ruled by Christ. And that actually, I think brings out the other element that who is, who is Christ ruler over in that particular sense? Uh, how, who are those to whom the rule of Christ is extended um, into the inner reaches of the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit and regeneration and so forth? And that's, I think, the other Christological way to correct my earlier um, my earlier absence of it. Um, there's there are those to whom the rule has extended, you know, into the inner courts, so to speak, and those who it's merely an outward. Uh, an outward submission. So that's, that's another element. Yeah. So I think that's all helpful. Um, in clarifying, I think that I, I don't know where I land on these questions. So I just want to say that up front, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking out loud here. I'm exploring the issues and, uh, hopefully, uh, learning from you guys about them. But, one concern that I might have, or one one of the questions that I think I'm trying to wrestle with is, does that just to individualize the faith that we have? And does that um, remove the encounter of faith from the institutional form of the church. So framing the ecclesiology, right? So, so there's the, there's, if you start from Christology, right, that's uh, one place to start, but it seems like a lot of the weight that is driving the invisible church claim is actually the existence of tares, right? Within our local community, that with the, the empirical problem of uh, sort of unregenerate people and who claim to be, you know, fully members of the body of Christ, right? Like that actually seems to be where a lot of the argumentative weight for the uh, existence of the invisible church is coming from. Uh, and I guess I just wonder whether that's the right starting point. Um, and whether it just too individualizes what it means to be a member of the people of God, uh, such that there really is a detachment from the institutional lived forms of, of this faith and such that me as an individual is uh, not just has a home or has a, a, a place within this body, but is in fact has a faith that is brought to bear, uh, brought to birth, um, conceived within this body, right? Where 
the institutional form of the church is in fact that which brings me up into the faith and nourishes me and strengthens me and so on, right? And so I think that's that's part of the question is, is whether or not the invisible church really does to individualize what it means to be a Christian. Well, when we read the chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession, which we were looking at earlier, um, it puts this in the strongest possible terms. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, that is referring to the visible church and unto that visible church Christ has given the ministries oracles ordinances of God and so when we're talking about the visible church there is huge weight placed upon that it is a real true sign of Christ's presence and it is the realm by in which we come into full enjoyment and participation in the blessings of Christ and outside of that there is no ordinary possibility of salvation that doesn't mean there's no possibility whatsoever but there is no ordinary possibility of salvation that is I think the strongest possible statement to give weight to the visible church while still recognizing that the invisible church is uh, state in stating the invisible church we are making clear that that visible church is a sign of that reality is a means by which we enter into enjoyment of that reality but yet is not to be straightforwardly confused with the full reality Good. Alistair, can I ask you a question? No. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, which visible church is being discussed there? Is it the visible church, uh, say, um, First Baptist Waco, just down the street from me? Is that the visible church that is being named there? Or is the visibility of the church in that context the collection of actual, in fact, regenerate believers who are sprinkled throughout Waco's 200 churches, more than 200, uh, right? The, the many churches in Waco, is that the visible church that's being named? Well, since it goes on in the next statement to say that it's been given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God, and that these are the marks of the church, um, it is those visible churches like in, you describe in Waco. It's not just the detached individuals. See, but I think this is this is part of the question, right? So the invisibility of the church as an article of faith is a collection of individuals who are, um, uh, you know, spread across a variety of churches. The visible church, which is the thing that we're supposed to see, has all these wheat and these tares in it, um, and that seems like that i think that that gap between those two and the derivation of the one from the other is just it's a tricky problem and so are you are you trying to are, are you are you bringing in local versus universal are are you um let, yeah clarify that a bit I, just because at the you're talking okay I, so the baptist church but is it is it also all the christians at the anglican church up the street 
and also all the Christians. Clearly, it's not them. Cl- clearly, it is not the Anglicans that we we can it's all a just decide. It's a hypothetical question. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I could throw in throw in a unicorn too, but um, you know, what's but yeah, well, Presbyterians you... might make it. In. Maybe, maybe. Oh man. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Hey, Waco is a Baptist town. What can I say? It's it's a fully right. Baptist town. Um. No, so I think yeah, I I think that is the question, Derek. I'm I'm wrestling with what the nature of the visibility is. Uh when when we then if we talk about the invisible church, um, that carries with it a corollary complementary claim about visibility. And the question then becomes, what is the visibility of the church and where do I see it and how do I see it? I think it's totally fair to say that it's an article of faith. In addition to right. as as the invisibility of the church is right, so um, it's the sort of visibility that is a spiritual visibility that can only be seen properly with uh, eyes that have been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. A visibility that um, is indexed to uh, uh, a specific action of God, and so has sort of falls under that purview. So it's it's a it's a peculiar kind of visibility. The, the visible church can't be a social body uh, like any other corporation, right? It can't just be a social service agency um, that meets regularly. Um, so the visibility of the church has to have a particular form. But I do think that the question is institutionally, uh, where do I look to see the visible church if the claim of the invisible church is that its uh, constitution and existence is composed of individual members from all of the visible churches. It's important to start with the recognition that we're not talking about two distinct churches. Um, We're talking about the church viewed from two distinct aspects. Um, And the invisible church is something that is found within the it's the foundations of the visible church. Um, when we're talking about all the ministry of the gospel, we're talking about participation in the sacraments, we're talking about all these things that nourish and give life to our faith, those are things within the visible church. And the invis- invisible church is, I suppose, the visible church is like the field that contains the wheat and the tares. Um, the when we're talking about the invisible church, it's describing the body of the wheat but and excluding the tares, but the wheat are situated within the field. The field really, I think, gives a clear sense of, in many senses, the primacy of the visible church, that that is the place where things are happening within this visible realm of communion and um, other things like that. It's not this retreat into this hidden thing that's detached from the visible church. Does that work for you? Maybe. Um, there is, There is. I think, um, talking about it as uh, the same church in two dimensions, if that's true, then the visibility of the church is detached from the institutionality of the church, 
right? So there's a distinction between the uh, church visible and the church in its institutional expressions. Um, and that's, I think, the gap that makes the question of the visibility of the church in its particular form uh, go. Because I think right, so. if it is the same church in two dimensions, then the visibility of the church is really just whatever the assembly is of all of the individual believers across all of the institutions who proclaim the word of God. So there's, there is something relativizing in that claim. Absolutely. And I think that's actually one of the, it's actually one of the strong points is it relativizes, um, kind of absolute institutional claims for what are historic and often all too human institutions. Um, I don't think it completely individualizes it. Uh, these, you know, the, the, the confession goes on. I mean, it goes on and it, <laughs> you know, whatever, let's just work our way through the whole, the whole, uh, category here. But it does say, you know, the, this universal, this Catholic church has been more, sometimes less, sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purity, purely in them. Uh, the purest, in Article 5, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and error and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. And then it goes on about the Pope. Um, but, but that, that element <laughs> Didn't of, want to read that part, huh? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> I can go there, but, but uh, just says the Pope can't call himself the head of the church, but the Lord Jesus Christ, which is, which is true. Um, but that element of... The universal church, you can spot it. You can spot the visible church where there's true preaching, true sacraments, and so forth. And you can look at individual churches, yes, according to that rubric. But um, you can't go ahead and, and look at First Baptist and say, that is the visible church. You can say that participates in the visible church. That is part of the visible church. Um, and it's that same dynamic of of kind of like the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Um, there's a sense in which you can look at you can look at elements of of work going on in the world uh, and say, oh, that's the kingdom of God at work. And yet you can't say that's the whole of the kingdom of God, or that's clearly entirely the kingdom of God, right? That that but that is an instance of the kingdom of God at work. And so you can look at individual, you can look at unique churches and say that is that is the visible church. Uh, there, but it's not the whole of the visible church, and it's not entirely uh, like can't be can't be identified without remainder as the visible church because there is inevitably impurity within it, and so there's a there's a yeah there's a relativization of each uh, each local institution to some degree um, that I think is good in pre preserving some of the some of the liberty of the gospel. And the glory of Christ that is is um, that is healthy in those kinds of and just kind of knowing that kind of that kind of distinction is real and exists. Um, I won't go into why all of all that, but that's my random. Also, understanding the historical situation of this, as Derek's suggested, is very important. That it's tackling a particular set of errors within the Roman Catholic Church. 
and its extreme emphasis upon its institutional unity and coming under the Pope. But yet, when you look at Christ as the head of the church, as you look at Christ as the foundation and the root of the church, and that he's the one that we draw our life from, it gives a very different understanding of things. And in some ways, we can think of uh, other analogies for this. It might be the difference between a house and a home. Um, that The home that you have is very much something that's a life that fills a particular visible entity and can take visible form, but more or less visible forms. But there are many houses that are not really homes, and there are many homes that um, don't really have a very visible form. And so when we're thinking about the church, if we place its life primarily in its institu- in the area of institutional membership, what we're doing is underselling some of the biblical claims about the church. The biblical claims about the church as the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. All these sorts of claims are grand claims to make. But if we're applying those to willy-nilly to every single person that has... Uh, membership within their local congregation, then we end up undermining those. On the other hand, if we detach those sorts of claims from visible congregations and from the ministry of the gospel, the um, administration of the sacraments and that sort of thing, then it ends up being this very ethereal spiritual religion that's detached from actual visible reality. And so the visible-invisible church distinction is designed to navigate that tension, to root these things within the visible ministry of the church, but also to avoid um, deflating these biblical claims by applying them indiscriminately to all people that belong to those visible bodies, or, on the other hand, to give such weight to visible unity and visible institutional expressions that you feed into some of the claims of the papacy. Well, I think that's a terrific note to end on. Um, yeah, this has been a helpful conversation for me, guys. I appreciate your patience with me as you think out loud about some of these questions and these issues. Um, I hope it's been helpful for our listeners at home. We're so grateful for your time and for your attention. Uh, special shout out to our Patreon subscribers, uh, supporters. Um, we're especially grateful for the monetary contributions that you guys have made to help keep this going for the last few years. Um, if you do want to join their merry band, uh, we'd love to have more supporters. Uh, you can find the details about how to do so in the show notes at Mere Orthodoxy. Uh, we are excited about the future of the show we've got some good stuff lined up um and we are so grateful for everyone's time and attention we will be back shortly in the next couple weeks or so with another episode but until then this has been mere fidelity mere fidelity